1: Islam is often divided into the general branches of Sunni and Shia in public debate. And while this does represent a major religious and social difference within the religion, it tends to simplify things to a degree. Not only does it not take into account other branches, such as the Ibadis, for instance, who are distinct from both Sunnis and Shias, but also paints the picture of two coherent schools or branches of Islam. In reality, both so-called Sunnism and Shi'ism are internally diverse, consisting of various sub-branches and schools. In previous episodes, we have already begun looking at some of the major branches of Shi'ism, specifically the uh, Twelvers and the Ismailis, and today we're going to be finishing that uh, main trilogy of introducing Shi'ism by looking at the third, smallest and yet very significant branch of Shi'ism, The Zaydis. A lot of people might not have heard about the Zaydis, but they are surely aware of them in one way or another. Indeed, the Zaydis still make up a significant portion of the population of Yemen, and have been involved in some of the conflicts that have been taking place there lately. The Zaydis indeed make up a quite unique form of Shi'ism, distinct in many ways from both the Twelvers and the Ismailis. But they still of course share some of the basic features of Shi'ism generally. So then, what is Shi'ism? The general division of Islam into Sunni and Shia has at its core a debate over authority. They all of course believe in the prophecy of Muhammad and the revelation of the Quran, but after the Prophet died, the question was who was supposed to succeed him and in what way. The group that would later come to be known as Sunni, believed that political authority was passed on to chosen members of Muhammad's wider community, the khulafa, or caliphs, and eventually accepted as, quote unquote righteous, the first four caliphs, Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali. Later caliphates, like the Umayyads and the Abbasids, were often considered legitimate leaders as representatives of the Prophet and of God, but are not revered in the same way as the first four. In terms of religious or spiritual authority, the Sunnis would come to recognize the community of scholars, the ulama, as the source of authority on law and belief, as well as the Sufi sheikhs and saints, the awliya. The Shi'is had a different view. Instead, they held that authority to lead the community was passed down in the Prophet's family. First, in a more general sense of being part of the Hashimi clan, but later becoming narrowed down specifically to the Alid family line, so the progeny of Muhammad's daughter Fatima and Ali, his cousin. Ali became the first so-called Imam of the Shi'is and plays an enormous role in their theology and doctrines. The title of Imam or Rightful Leader was then passed down from Ali to his son Hassan and then his brother Hussein. Although some Ismailis, like the Nizari Ismailis, uh, don't always accept Hassan as an Imam per se. In the earliest period, there were many debates around rightful authority in the Muslim community. We can in no way talk about a simple Shia versus Sunni divide at this time. Um, These communities as fixed identities wouldn't be formulated until many centuries later. Instead, there were many different claimants to authority, both politically and religiously, some of whom legitimized their rule simply on power or other factors, while others, the Alids, did so based on their direct familial connection to the Prophet. And the earliest forms of the distinct wider uh, Shia community appears to have been focused specifically in the city of Kufa in the early 8th century. A city that, after all, had been the capital of Ali's caliphate and continued to be a significant scholarly hub for the community. This Shi'i or Alid movement was broadly characterized by a few basic ideas. First, the idea that Ali had been the rightful successor to the Prophet Muhammad rather than the first three Rashidun caliphs, Abu Bakr, Omar, and Uthman. Secondly, they were critical of the Umayyad dynasty that ruled at that time and their style of ruling, which they felt favored tribal elites, similar to pre Islamic times, rather than early converts and a societal order based on pious, sort of universal Islamic values. And thirdly, they held that the true authority to lead the Muslim community rested with the Alids, the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad through his daughter Fatima and Ali, and their sons Hassan and Hussein. Aside from this, however, there could be widely different opinions within this broader Shi'i community regarding all kinds of topics and doctrines. Some groups were very critical of the early Rashidun caliphs for usurping Ali as the true successors, others were more moderate and accepted the caliphates of at least Abu Bakr and Omar, even though it hadn't been the optimal solution. And here, in the 8th century, we also start seeing the crystallization and division of Shiism into the more clearly defined schools that we would recognize today. We have already spent at least two episodes exploring the Twelver and Ismaili she's, so you should advise those earlier chapters or episodes for that. Um, I've also basically based much of my discussion here so far on the same uh, script from that old video, right? So uh, from this point on, things will start to diverge. And if you want to know more about the Twelvers and Ismailis, then I advise you to go back and check out those episodes in particular. In short, both the Twelvers and Ismailis, who are sometimes uh, universally or broadly known as the Imamis, both of these groups, they both agree on a few different points. For one thing, they are both united by a similar idea about the Imamate—that that is, the role and person of the imam as central to religious life, and often playing a kind of cosmic theological role in reality too. To these imamishis, there is always one imam in the world, and this one imam is appointed by the imam before, who is usually his father, at least someone above him in his family line. And this is done by a divine decree called Nas. In other words, the Twelvers and Ismailis believe that there is a specific line of imams, starting with Ali, moving on to Hassan, at least for the Twelvers, Hussein, his son Ali ibn al-Hussain, then we have Muhammad al-Baqir and Jafar as sadiq after which they split into differing opinions of succession. Each imam is infallible and is appointed by the infallible imam before him, and they play a central role in the religious lives of shis. The imam is the person who has been given complete knowledge by God of the Quran and Islamic religion, being able to interpret it for new times and circumstances. However, the group that we're talking about today, the Zaydis, are quite different. They, of course, share in the wider characteristics of the, the Shi'i movement generally, in the Alid movement, um, and they do also agree that, that the Imam is the most important person in religious and also political life. Uh, but their idea of the Imamate is quite different and distinct compared to the other schools of Shi'ism. It is often said that Zaydism properly starts at a very particular point in time with the failed rebellion of Zaid ibn Ali in 740 against the Umayyads. Zaid ibn Ali was the grandson of Imam Hussein and the half-brother of Muhammad al-Baqir, who the Imam consider the canonical imam. Zaid, just like many others at the time, was greatly critical of the Umayyad rulers, and when he lived in Kufa for a while, he managed to gather the support of a significant amount of the population to, st- to basically stand behind him in a rebellion. But the Umayyads found out about this, and were very quick to apply countermeasures so fast that Zaid didn't really have enough time to gather his forces properly. After several people also abandoned him when things got violent, his rebellion was quickly put down and he was killed. But the life and actions of Zaid ibn Ali came to serve as an important basis for what was to become the Zaydi Shi'i community and their doctrines. In fact, one of the characteristic features of the Zaidis is that rather than viewing the imamate as being handed down in a specific line of succession by divine appointment or nas, they hold that anyone within the Alid family line, especially from the progeny of Hassan and hussein can become an imam, provided that they, one, are pious and strictly observing Muslims, of course. Number two, have the required level of scholarly knowledge. Important also, this is a knowledge that can be learned through studying rather than being given by God, so to say. And third, and perhaps most importantly, his ability and success in winning supporters through dawah, or missionary work, and leading an armed rebellion against an oppressive state. This is significantly different from ideas about the Imam in Twelver and Ismaili Shi'ism. Here, the position of Imam is something that you qualify for by living up to these specific expectations, as well as belonging to the Alid family, of course. This can be seen also, for example, in the traditions of hadiths that are used by the Zaidis, where, of course, aside from the Prophet Muhammad, traditions can be traced to a wide array of different people and scholars from the Alid family, rather than the specifically appointed imams of the imamis. Once an imam is established and accepted by the community, he is often elected by a group of Zaidi scholars who will... Uh, sort of, um, they will recognize that this particular person lives up to all these expectations of the imam, and so he becomes basically elected by these scholars. Uh, Once that happens, he does have a significant amount of power. He serves as both a political and religious leader, expected to be able to effectively take care of the, um, the economics of the state, to defend it militarily, as well as, of course, having the freedom of interpreting the religion and giving legal pronouncements. The imam is the person who has the highest authority to do ijtihad or independent interpretation of like the Quran or the hadith, and make legal rulings in the religion. Based on this, one would expect that they differ in other ways too, and this is of course true. Sometimes people will claim that the za'idis are the Shi'i group that is closest to Sunnism in doctrine and character, or even that it is indeed more similar to Sunnism generally than Shi'ism. And While one can perhaps understand where these assumptions come from, it isn't quite that simple. In fact, Zaydism has also changed and evolved quite a lot throughout history. Scholars will often say that Zaydism evolved through a fusion of two different strands of the more general Shi'i movement in the early period, the so-called Batris and the Jarudis. The Batris are sometimes seen as a more moderate quote-unquote group, which held the opinion that Muhammad had implicitly appointed Ali as his successor, and that when some in the Muslim community then chose to appoint Abu Bakr and then Omar as successors, they had made an error, but one based on faulty understanding, which did not amount to unbelief or kufr. In other words, while Ali was the rightful successor, as all other Shi'is agreed, the Batri Zaidis refused to condemn Abu Bakr and Omar as usurpers and unbelievers, as many others did. They also generally accepted the religious authority of non-Alids, so that one could, for example, study under uh, what we could call proto-Sunni scholars and gain proficient knowledge from this. You didn't have to study just with an Alid or with another Shi'i, to use uh, later terminology, right? You could study with anyone. uh, So it was more open in that sense to different um, denominations, right? Knowledge was knowledge and knowledge was universal. It wasn't confined to one particular group. They also seem to have held some particular theological ideas, such as the rejection of Raja, the idea that Um, Some people will return from the dead before the day of resurrection. They rejected this. Um, They also rejected the idea of of, of taqiyya, uh, which is hiding religious identity in times of oppression, as well as rejecting the concept of bada, which is um, that God can um, change a decision based on historical circumstances. The batri position seems, according to many sources, to be the one held by Zaid ibn Ali himself. On the contrary, the Jarudi position was often basically the opposite. It states that Muhammad had explicitly appointed Ali as the true successor, and when Abu Bakr, Umar, and Uthman took the leadership of the caliphate, this was an act of unbelief and apostasy even, as well as you know, giving similar um, you know, opinions on those who opposed Ali during the first civil war. And in terms of the theological doctrines, they being the opposite, right? they, they accept all these terms that the other ones don't, like, like Raja or Taqiyya and, and Bada. So, so while the Batris reject all these, these aspects, the Jarudis accept them as legitimate. And as Zaydism crystallized more and more into a distinct movement with characteristic ideas, it is said that this was generally through a kind of combination of these two positions, but with a much heavier focus on the later Jarudis but many scholars today, however, including Najam Haider, argue that the Batris and Jarudis weren't actual schools at this time. Rather, they are terms used by the Sunni heresiologists to refer to a kind of development within Zaidism. For most of the 8th century, the Zaidis were much more inclined to the Batri position, thus making them, according to many, much closer to the proto-Sunnis than other Shi'i groups, whereas from the 9th century onward, Jarudi doctrines would come to dominate almost completely. In other words, from this time onwards, so the uh, primarily we could say the 9th, 10th century, the Zaydis take on a much more noticeably Shi'i character, and we start to see the crystallization of the classical school of Zaydism, which is often called Hadawi Zaydism. While Zaydism has been widespread across history, it's always been primarily popular and um, geographically focused on uh, the Caspian region, but even more so in Yemen, where several Zaydi imamates have appeared over the centuries, and they remain a significant part of the population in Yemen even today. But what are the actual doctrines or teachings of Zaydism, or perhaps Hadawi Zaydism in particular? Well, as we've done in earlier episodes, we might do well to begin by exploring their theology. In fact, central to the crystallization of classical Hadawi-Zaidism is their adoption and adherence to the theological school known as the Mu'tazila. The Mu'tazila was one of the earliest, some say the earliest, school of doctrinal theology in Islam, which rose to prominence during the uh, 8th and 9th centuries primarily. It was adopted as official doctrine by some of the Abbasid Caliphs and played a big part in major theological debates in early Islam generally. It is said that Zayd ibn Ali himself studied with the founder of the Mu'tazili school, Wasil ibn Atta. Whether this is historically accurate is hard to say, but it highlights that Zaydism and Mu'tazilism has had a close relationship in history. The Mu'tazila are famous for their rationalistic approach to religion and scripture. In terms of the Qur'an, they had a tendency of reading certain verses metaphorically, especially those that talked about God in anthropomorphic ways. If the Qur'an says that God has a hand, this is a metaphor for his power, for instance. Furthermore, they have a relatively strict idea of tawhid, or monotheism, where they will emphasize the oneness of God in relation to his attributes, for instance. So in the Qur'an, God is described by different names corresponding to attributes, so uh, like merciful, or living, or hidden, and all these different names that he has. And to the Mu'tazila, these attributes are not part of God's essence, because that would compromise his oneness and lead to anthropomorphism. If God is this essence that has a bunch of attributes as part of that essence, that seems to indicate that God can be divided into parts, which clashes with the oneness that must be affirmed. God is one without parts, right? So the Mu'tazila deny the independent existence of the attributes. Instead, the attributes are identical to God's essence. So one could put it in such a way that God doesn't have knowledge, but he is knowledge. The attribute of knowledge is identical to his essence along with all the other attributes. And this also led them to their perhaps most famous and hotly debated position, namely the idea that the Qur'an is created rather than being co-eternal with God. To them, saying that the Qur'an pre-exists with God as his speech also seems to compromise his oneness. So they see the Qur'an as a created thing, the created speech of God. And this was a very hotly debated question in the 9th century. In general, to summarize the school, the Mu'tazila are often presented as holding five key doctrines. Number one, their ideas on tawhid or monotheism, which is what we have just been discussing. Number two is the principle of divine justice, adal. This can very briefly be explained as the idea that God acts in a just way and is good in a sense that can be known by human beings. So we as human beings have the innate capacity to know what is right and what is wrong. We have this, we just know, we can know based on our rational thinking, we can know what is right and wrong, right? And God acts according to the objectively just and right way that we can know through reason. God always does good and just things, but we can know what is good, so, God acts according to what we know to be just and good behavior, so to say. This is in opposition to the positions taken by other schools, such as the Ash'adis, for instance, uh, which hold that that which God does is by definition right. So, that we know what is right simply by what God tells us is right or what he does, so to say. It's not that we can independently come to the conclusion of what is right and wrong as human beings using reason we have to rely on God as our sort of measuring stick to know this is good this this is this is right this is wrong so there's a clear difference in theology there um, in terms of, of of ethics so to say this mu'tazili view thus holds that God can never be the cause of evil actions and always acts in the best interest of human beings this also necessitates another key mu'tazili doctrine the idea that we as humans have free will. And it is thus we who choose entirely whether to do the right thing or not. Evil, so to say, is entirely up to us. Number three is the promise and the threat, al-wad wa'l-wad. This is somewhat connected to the last idea too. God promises certain rewards and punishments for people in the Quran. And these promises and threats will be fulfilled without compromise on the Day of Judgment. What this means on a practical level is that they reject the ideas of things like the prophet interceding for people on the day of judgment to help them, or of God deciding to show mercy to a sinner and lessening his punishment at that point. He has promised something in the Quran and that is what's going to happen. You get what you deserve, in other words. Fourth, there is the intermediate position. Najam Haider says that this quote classifies the grave sinner as neither a believer nor a non-believer, but rather as a fasiq, a morally corrupt individual who maintained his legal standing in the Muslim community even as he was condemned to eternal damnation in hell. And fifth is enjoining the good and forbidding the wrong. This is simply the idea that Muslims are commanded to actively seek to promote pious and good behavior and condemning and sort of counteracting sin or corruption in society. While the Mu'tazila was very popular, especially in the early centuries, in the Sunni world, this school was for the most part abandoned in favor of schools that um, compromised more to the traditionist views, such as the Ashari and Maturidi schools. But in Shiism, the Mu'tazila remained very popular. The Twelver Shi'is, which is the largest of the Shi'i branches, adopted a modified version of Mu'tazilism as their official theology, and the Zaidis appear to have basically almost wholesale, although with some modifications, of course, adapted the school as well. So, this is also a major difference with the Sunni schools, you could say. But what about law and jurisprudence? How does the fiqh or jurisprudence in Zaidism work? Many have said that their legal methodology is very similar to the Sunni Shafi'i school. And since at least the 19th century, there has been an increased quote-unquote Sunnification of Zaydism as well, uh, which we'll get to later. But in terms of the classical Hadawi Zaydi tradition, it is actually quite difficult to find uh, comprehensive information about this topic of, of, of Zaydi fiqh in English language. At least I've had a lot of trouble finding um, reliable um, research on, on this topic, for instance. I would love if, if any of you out there have, have uh, recommendations for that stuff. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of it in Arabic, but in, in, in English there seems to be a lack of, 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 of publications uh, dealing with Zaydi Fiqh as far as I can see. Like I said, many seems to hold the opinion that Zaydi jurisprudence share many features with the, both the Shafi'i and Hanafi schools in, in, in Sunni Islam in terms of methodology. The Quran is always the number one source for for doctrine and and for law, of course. But aside from the Quran, the Zaydis do have collections of Hadith, just like many other schools of Islam do. Um, and the Zaydi Hadiths, for instance, they collect traditions not just about the sayings and deeds of Muhammad and and his closest companions, for instance, but also a bunch of scholars from the Ahl al Bayt generally. So the the family of the prophet the alids uh, so the wider alid uh, community scholars from that community there are hadiths that that refer to them as authority and aside from the quran and the hadith these traditions the zaidis also employ the principles of consensus so specifically the consensus of the ahl al bayt uh, and also uses also what is known as ijtihad or independent interpretation based primarily on qiyas or analogy, as well as principles such as Ihtihsan, which is rulings based on the benefit and good of the community, which they share particularly with the Hanafis. As we saw, the imam himself also plays an important role in Zaydi law, as the ruling imam of a given Zaydi Imamate is the one responsible for giving rulings on the religion and the laws of society. Again, the scholar Najm Haider says, quote, In terms of religion, the imam must be a jurist qualified to perform ajdihad, rational interpretation of revealed text, as well as a neutral arbiter and judge vigorously enforcing Islamic legal rulings with a firm and just hand. Zaidi legal theory permits the perpetual reinterpretation of the divine text by scholars for the creation of a flexible legal code, Sharia. The imam serves as the final judge between competing scholarly rulings and is empowered to implement his own legal decisions as the decisive law of the land. This allows each imam the latitude to exercise an independent ijtihad and thereby create his own set of legal interpretations. In short, we can say that Shis share most of the ritual and features of most other Muslim groups. They pray five times a day, they fast during Ramadan, they give to charity, etc. And in the more particular points of law, they sometimes share features with one school, while at other times they have features of another school, and it would get really boring if I were to just list a bunch of such points here. Unlike the Twelver Shi'is, they reject the idea of temporary marriage, for example, but in many other features, they share characteristics with their fellow Shi'is more so than with the Sunnis. As one example of this, the Zaidis, of course, celebrate some of the significant Shi'i festivals, such as Eid al Ghadir, where one commemorates the nomination of Ali by Muhammad as his successor at Ghadir Khum, or the commemoration of the martyrdom of Imam Hussein at Karbala, which is widely known as Ashura. While the Zaidis don't have the A very dramatic cosmic perspective on this event that other groups of Shi'is have, they still commemorate it as a very tragic event where one of the important and early imams were brutally martyred. The classical form of Zaydism, with this particular legal outlook, as well as the strongly Mu'atazili theology, is, as we have seen, referred to as Hadawi Zaydism. And this name comes from one of the most significant Zaydi scholars and imams in history, Imam al-Hadi al haqq Yahya ibn al hussein a fascinating figure who was originally from Medina, but later moved to Yemen and became an imam of an imamate there, a kingdom, in the northern part of the country. He also, as imam, became important for the formulation of Zaydi jurisprudence and law by, for example, writing works like the very formative and important Kitab al-Ahkām. Hadawi Zaydism dominated for most of history, and with its Jarudi leanings, Mu'tazili theology, and other features, it certainly seems to fall pretty well into the wider Shi'i category. So, when people say that Zaydism is more similar to Sunnism, what's up with that? Well, this is a complex question. We do see from the 14th century or so an increasing critique uh, of the traditional Hadawi Zaidi principles from what is often termed traditionist scholars. This is usually uh, Sunnis uh, as a particular kind of uh, branch of Sunni theology and law that is very scriptural in nature uh, that, 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 that critiqued a lot of, of the Hadawi Zaidi principles. Some of this critique could sometimes also come from within the Zaidi community itself. When we say traditionist scholars, sometimes also traditionalist scholars, but the two terms are used for different particular, they have different particular meanings. We're not going to get into that now. But generally, this means uh, scholars or a movement within Sunni Islam that is very scriptural in methodology. So they want to return only to the texts of the Quran and the Hadith uh, as sources and interpret uh, these sources directly in what is known as Jihad, uh, which means that they also reject things like taqlid or imitation of previous legal precedents, which was very common at this time. This development of an increasing critique of the traditional uh, Hadawi-Zaidi principles really came to a head during the 19th century in Yemen, um, during the so-called Qasimid Imamate. This development is particularly associated with a scholar called Muhammad al shawkani He came originally from a Hadawi-Zaidi family, but eventually became a Sunni traditionist that aimed great critique at the Zaidis. In many ways, Shawkani can be seen as another example of the wider movement called Salafism that was becoming very popular at this time. Influenced by relatively marginal figures like Ibn Taymiyyah, several such reform movements appeared around this time, including also, of course, that of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, the founder of so-called Wahhabism, further north in Arabia. Shawkani and those like him criticized some of the core features of Zaydism. To him, the Sunni hadith collections was the most reliable source for traditions or hadith, and emphasizes that one should not rely on taqlid or imitation, but return to the original, in this case Sunni, sources, and through ijtihad, reach conclusions regarding law and sometimes theology. Through this, he critiqued the very idea of the imamate, that political leadership could only be authentically held by a sayyid, a descendant of the prophet as well as the very theological foundations of the tradition by rejecting the Mu'atazila and all forms of speculative theology, also known as Kalam. Surprisingly, the Qasimid leaders were actually quite intrigued by these ideas, and Shao doctrines eventually basically became the official creed of the state. A similar tendency can be seen in later political dynasties in Yemen as well. Many have pointed to the fact that there were at least partly political reasons for this the traditionist critique of Hadawi zaidism rejected the more restrictive ideas of political leadership altogether, where, as we know, an imam had to be from the right lineage and be selected as the best candidate by a group of scholars, in favor instead of a Sunni model that was more broadly inclusive and allowed for things like dynastic succession and rejection of rebellion generally. This was, of course, politically fruitful to dynasties that wanted to stay in power more easily. Whatever the case, this started a major rift in the Zaidi community in the modern world, which is sometimes referred to a Sunnification of the tradition. Many Zaidis from the 19th century onwards, while still identifying themselves as Zaidis and retaining certain key features of that school, started adapting the views of the traditionists in both methodology and doctrine, moving them much closer to a kind of Sunnism in some ways, maybe even specifically a Salafi-influenced Sunnism. It's worth saying that this was of course also fruitful for other reasons, for building better relations with the wider Sunni world by emphasizing that they were similar to them in doctrine. And this development has continued to this day. At the same time, there are many other Zaydis in Yemen that have continued to emphasize the classic Hadawi Zaydi doctrines, and especially through certain reform efforts in the last few decades. So, as you can tell, the situation is quite complicated. When people say that Zaydism is close to Sunnism, this is certainly true in many cases today, after two centuries of the so-called Sunnification of that tradition. But at the same time, for most of history, the Zaydis have adhered to doctrines that are very foreign to the Sunni paradigm, and fit much more neatly within the Shi'i framework, even if still being rather distinct from other Shi'i groups in other ways too, of course. So how we tackle that question depends on what perspective we view this topic from. The Zaydi Shias have been an important and long-standing tradition within Islam. Beginning, at least in clear form, around the rebellion of Zayd ibn Ali and the scholarly community in Kufa, to eventually spread to places like the Caspian Sea and Yemen, where they remained a significant presence until today. Their doctrines are distinct, but interact with other schools of Islam in fascinating ways, and even in this aspect they have gone through uh, very fascinating developments over the many centuries. From the Batri inclinations of the early movement to the Jarudi positions, and later the crystallization of Zaidism through the incorporation of Mu'ataziri theology and a distinct legal tradition, and then lastly, in the last few centuries, the so-called sunification of the school uh, in the modern world. Hopefully now we have a bit of a better overview of this wider topic so that when you hear a bunch of um, reports from Yemen and all the conflicts there, you will better be able to grasp and, and understand the different um, questions of identity and religious belonging that are parts of what's going on over there, uh, as well as understanding the wider questions of identity and and different schools within Islam generally. And I'll see you next time.